0: Hi everyone, Duncan Green here uh, on a beautiful sunny Friday morning uh, here in South London. I'm about to jump on my bike and go to the LSC for some teaching. Um, but first, uh, let's get do the roundup of blogs on From Poverty to Power this week. Um, started off with um, Melissa, uh, links I liked, and the one I'd pick up there is a really nice infographic. Increasingly, I find the links I liked is mainly graphics I liked. There's so many good graphics and videos and funny photos and stuff that it's getting more and more visual. I think if I went back and looked when I started doing these it would be lots of links to worthy articles. Maybe my attention span is getting shorter but I'm, I'm definitely doing a lot of links to visuals. This one is by Melissa Gatter at the University of Sussex and she says, I created this infographic to help students envision how they can responsibly do development the heart of it is critical hope, a core pillar of Sussex University Development Studies teaching that shows students how they can be highly critical of development and still work to radically transform it. Really nice angle because I think there's so many critiques of aid in particular, I still have a problem with calling aid development, but there we go, different discussion. but sometimes uh, students feel completely disempowered. They just feel like they're part of the problem. There's nothing they can do. They wonder why they've chosen this course, and I think these are these are good questions to ask. But the fact that Melissa's uh, infographic helps them get through that to what they can usefully contribute is a really nice um, um, addition to to, and uh, that's why I put it uh, big on uh, on that post. The next post was from me, Um, top tips on seminar presentations and the return to IRL, which if you don't speak acronym is in real life. Um, And this is partly a response to the first wave of uh, student seminars and just being back in the room. So after the Zoom years, lots of us are now back in the lecture theatre or other forms of real life contact and exchange, intoxicating in many ways. But I'm also struck that it feels the same, but different to the pre-COVID world. So I thought I'd jot down a few thoughts about getting the most out of these encounters, partly for readers, partly for my students, and hopefully to get, get you to throw in some good ideas too. First, the tech. The tech content has gone up, especially in hybrid sessions. And although everyone, even me, has become a lot more tech literate under COVID, it can still get pretty messy. Clickers that don't click, Mics that the the, the mic, simultaneous streaming and recording on Teams or Zoom. The key for me is to get the tech under control beforehand, so I can concentrate on the actual lecture without getting flustered or distracted. That means getting in to the lecture theatre a bit early, and if necessary, doing a rehearsal before first use, and/or trying to have a tech elf on hand, especially for that all-important first lecture. And I'm learning from some bad experiences at LSE this term on this one. Second, some old truths still apply, namely the basic rules of good PowerPoint. Images are generally better than words, few words better than lots of words. Alternate between presenters, avoid PowerPoint karaoke, that moment when the speaker turns to the screen and reads out a long paragraph of text, which most people in the room are perfectly capable of reading for themselves. Um, if you embed videos, make sure in advance that they work in this room with this equipment, especially the sound. Again, painful experience on this one. Similarly with interactive tech. There's lots more of this around, You know, getting people to go online to a certain website and give uh, fill in a poll or something, but you want it to fit in with and enhance the flow, not interrupt it. Some of my students made great use of Menti last week for a really quick poll, very nice. How many slides do you really need? Um, and then I've got a sort of a, pre, a link to a previous rant on conference presentations. Nothing spoils a presentation more than an out of time speaker rushing or gabbling through their remaining 20 slides. And I said here a 15 minute talk should have a maximum of seven or eight slides. But actually I got picked up on this and I, I, it's probably more one minute per slide really. Um, and just a, a name check to Peter Evans who said, it's called PowerPoint, not power lots of points, which I thought was quite nice. So I did get picked up on this actually because people who are visually impaired don't, they want to hear people, the, the presenters read out the slides. Um, and so in some ways this is slightly uh, yeah, exclusive and I, I take that on board. Still searching for the perfect guide for student seminar presenters. Any suggestions please? Third, the Q&A. First question to a woman naturally. this is This is something I've gone on about for years, really interesting research in seminars, that if the chair just gives the first question to a woman, You tend to get 50-50 gender split on questions after that. If the first question goes to a man you tend to get 75-25 or something like that. Uh, Don't virtue signal, don't say I'm going to ask the first question to a woman. Just do it without signaling it and you get much better uh, uh, much better balance in what comes next. Second, be kind. Asking questions can be scary for people so always be positive in response unless the questioner is a pompous air hog, this is a comment more than the question, all that sort of stuff or asking something random and totally off topic. But even then, there's no need to be mean, just you know, close them down and move on. Particularly if the question is asking in their second, third or nth language, which is often the case, listen hard and see if there's actually a question behind the question and then try and answer that. That's, that's tricky and it requires a lot of concentration, especially on sort of dodgy Zoom links and that kind of thing. As the presenter or supposed supposed expert, saying I don't know is a good thing. It's positive. It reduces the power imbalance in the room. It makes it clear that no one's an expert on everything. Everybody has something to contribute. Enjoy yourself and the contact with the audience. Be funny if you can pull it off. Um, When brain fade sets in with me, I sometimes start my answer with, this is loosely inspired by your question. And that usually gets a laugh. Um, finally, the content. For seminar present presentations, great presenters dominate the reading list rather than being led by it. They summarise, spot trends and tensions in the literature and add to or critique it as they go. As for the audience, my favourite bluffer's guide to looking smart during somebody else's PowerPoint is, raise your hand and say, hmm, could you go back a slide, please? Then just say, thanks, and look wise. It makes you look so smart, you don't have to actually understand anything that's going on. Genius. So I asked for other suggestions, got lots. Ten comments. Um, I have to say at the moment the comments are working much better than Twitter. Twitter seems to have gone completely dead when I ask a general question of nearly 40,000 followers. I quite often get nothing back, Um, whereas on the the blog you usually get some really handy links and comments. So maybe this is a post-Musk sort of depression on Twitter but Twitter is not as as, uh, vibrant as it used to be as, as far as I can work out. The next post was on the role of grandmothers in the care economy. In slope of coffee there. In recent years, oxan has been doing some pioneering work on the care economy, aka the bit Adam Smith left out. So Kate Raworth has this lovely spot in her book Donut Economics*, where she says, yeah, Adam Smith wrote all this stuff about the econ- about um, you know the the formal economy while living at home with his mum." and never mentioned that his mum did all the cooking and cleaning and basically allowed him to write the book. It was a wonderful. I, I love that bit. Anyway, my uninformed mental image of this had been all about the role of parents, generally mothers, in running the household and bringing up the kids. So I was struck by a recent Economist piece on the global role of grandmothers. Some excerpts. And before we get on to that, a word about The Economist. I love The Economist. Other people hate it. I sometimes hate it. I tend to find the further it gets from economics, the more interesting it is, but it covers topics like this one with a global spread, uh, beautiful writing, you know, just picks up topics that no one else would pick up. Where else would you read an article on the global role of grandmothers? So I th- I'm, I'm a big fan of The Economist, even though my politics are not the same as its politics. Uh, I read it religiously every week. Okay, back to the piece on grandmothers. Two big demographic trends are making nana and Gramps more important. First, people are living longer. Global life expectancy has risen from 51 to 72 since 1960. Second, families are shrinking over the same period. The number of babies a woman can expect to have in her lifetime has fallen by half, from 5 to 2.4. That means the ratio of living grandparents to children is steadily rising. Surprisingly little research has been done into this. We found that there are 1.5 billion grandparents in the world, up from 0.5 billion, so triple, in 1960. By 2050, we project that there will be 2.1 billion grandparents, uh, making up 22% of humanity, and slightly more grandparents than under-15s. That will have profound consequences. The evidence suggests children do better with grandparental help, which usually in practice means from grandmothers and it will help drive another unfinished social revolution the movement of women into paid work that's very economistic anyway <clears throat> since fertility rates and life expectancy vary enormously from country to country the age of the grandparents has not yet, yet dawned everywhere there are 29% of bulgarians but only 10% of burundians their average age varies widely too from 53 in uganda to 72 in japan To understand what a difference plentiful grandparents make, a good place to start is in a country where they are still scarce. Consider Senegal. Most rural Senegalese are subsistence farmers. Although fertility has dropped from 7.3 babies per woman in 1980 to 4.5 today, large families remain the norm. Amy Diallo, an 84-year-old matriarch wrapped in a blue and white hijab, has to think carefully when asked how many grandchildren she has. 30, she concludes, looking up from her cross-legged position on the floor of her home in Tali outside Dakar, the capital, on a street where horses and carts jostle with sheep and cars. As the oldest member of her family, she commands respect. She offers moral guidance to the young, be honest and pious, uphold tradition, and stop hitting your younger brother. Every year she leads a family pilgrimage to Tivouane, a Muslim holy city, with children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren and various in-laws, perhaps a 100 in all. Grandparents pass on traditional beliefs, stories, songs and a sense of history. More prosaically, they bring an extra pair of hands. That helps both parents and children. A study in rural Gambia, for example, found that the presence of a maternal grandmother significantly increased a child's chance of living to the age of two. In sub-Saharan Africa, the odds of being in school are about 15% higher for children living with a grandfather, and 38% higher for children who live with a grandmother. As for Mrs Diallo, she has never worked outside the home, but she has helped some of her offspring to do so. Dae, one of her daughters, got a job in an office despite having eight kids herself, because Mrs Diallo helped out with the children. Yet for all her sense of love and duty, Mrs Diallo cannot babysit all 30 grandkids. The state offers little help. Unlike Ndaim, many of Mrs Diallo's daughters and granddaughters have never worked outside the home. This is common. Barely a third of working-age women in Senegal are either in work or seeking it. Grandparents in the poorest countries do their best, but there are not enough of them. In richer places, fertility has fallen much farther than in Africa. A typical Mexican woman, for example, can expect to have only two children, down from nearly seven in 1960. Mexico's ratio of living grandparents to children is three times higher than Senegal's. Mexican abuelas thus have more time to lavish on each grandchild. Irma Aguilar Verdusco lives with her daughter, also called Irma, and two grandchildren, Rodrigo and Fernanda. She cooks, does school runs, and reads with her grandchildren. Ever since he was three, Rodrigo now 16, has liked her take a cup of coffee and sit down for a chat with his grandmother. Hold on, rewind. Rodrigo started drinking coffee at three. That's interesting, certainly odd from from my parenting background anyway. Fernanda, now 12, still likes to get into bed with her. Irma Jr, meanwhile, has long worked 12 hour days, currently as a manager at the Maya train, a big rail project. She's divorced and says her ex-husband does not help. She could not have done anything without Irma Sr's help. Grandmothers are the main source of non-parental childcare for young children in Mexico, especially since COVID-19 forced many no- nurseries to close. They watch, o- they watch over nearly 40% of sprogs under six. Before grandma moved in, Imma was struggling. There is no understanding or flexibility for working mothers in Mexico, she complains. Her kids were often home alone. Sometimes I pay people to look after them, but it was hard to afford and hard to trust people. One day, years ago, Rodrigo came home from nursery with a broken bone. Irma suspects mistreatment. With her mother around, she feels relaxed. Miguel Dalamas of the Inter-American Development Bank and his colleagues have tried to estimate how much Mexican grandmothers help their daughters get paid work. They looked at what happened to families after grandmothers die. An abuela's death reduced by 27%, or 12 percentage points, the chance that her daughter was in the labor force. And reduced her earnings by 53%. And the same study found no effect on the employment rate of fathers. <sighs> Never mind, let's not go there. Living with grandparents is not always easy. They may have outdated ideas or demand too much deference. In India, where couples traditionally live with their husband's parents, a genre of television drama turns on the fraught relationship between wives and mother in laws. A study of rural Indian women in 2018 found that those who lived with their mummyji, mother-in-law, had little freedom. Only 12% were allowed to visit friends or relatives alone. In rural China, grandparents helped reduce the harm caused by the government. Under the apartheid-like hukau household registration system, rural Chinese who move to cities are treated as second-class citizens. Their children are barred from local public schools, so they're often left behind with their grandparents in their parents' home village. But rural schools are often dire Grandparents, though well-meaning, are often barely literate. Scott Rosell of Stanford University finds that more than half of toddlers in rural China are cognitively delayed, partly because their grandparents do not realise that it is important to talk to them. In Chinese cities, the story is different. The one-child policy, which became a three-child policy in 2021, was always enforced more strictly in cities than the countryside. So many urban families consist of four grandparents, two parents and just one child. Thus, there is no shortage of caring hands. I have to say, I feel a bit sorry for the child in that situation, but that's just me being cynical. Urban children often live with grandparents during the week and see their hardworking parents on weekends. Nurseries are pricey and distrusted in China. Grandmothers often retire in their 50s to watch over the precious only grandchild. This works well enough. The labour force participation rate for Chinese women is at 62%, slightly higher than America's. If you want to give your child a good education, you have to work hard and earn a lot of money, says Zhao Bao, an architect and mother in a 421 family, who has used both sets of grandparents for childcare. But in the process of making money, you can lose the time spent with your child, and she expresses a common fear that grandparents tend to spoil their only grandchildren. Overall, looking after kids appears to be good for grandparents. Those who spend time with their grandchildren report lower levels of depression and loneliness. But one can have too much of a good thing. Youngsters can be exhausting, frustrating and objectionable. I love that. A study in Singapore with many ethnically Chinese families found that many looked after their grandchildren more out of duty than because they relished it. Many find it harder as they age. Some are squeezed in the grand sandwich generation, relied upon to help with their grandchildren and their own ailing parents. Oh no. Some hanker for a more relaxing retirement." Brilliant piece. Just a really thought-provoking piece. Really brought out the, the differences between different regions, the, the benefits and costs of grandparent-linked care. Just yeah, a really, good, a really good piece of writing. So I asked, you know, this is interesting, and I imagine that the policy prescriptions for supporting grandmothers are different From the policy prescriptions for supporting parents. So I just said anyone got anything on this? Got seven comments so far in the links and as I say the blog is working really well in terms of people chipping in and coming in and commenting. Right last of the week book review. So I've had a book sitting on my desk for a while called Political Settlements and Development Theory Evidence Implications and I have to say the title alone was slightly off-putting but I gave it a go over Christmas. I had some time. I caught up with my stack of review copies. If you hang around conversations on thinking and working politically, as I do, you'll hear a lot of references to political settlements as it's grown up, more academic, but sometimes incomprehensible cousin. As this new book's blurb, declares, at its most ambitious political settlements analysis, PSA, promises to explain why conflicts occur and states collapse the conditions for their successful rehabilitation, different developmental pathways from peace, and from peace, to peace I presume, and how to better fit development policy to country context. That's a pretty tall order. That's that's an ambitious claim, I think, that one. But, and we get back into the book now, not all is well in the world of PSA with lots of disagreements over definitions and implications. This new book by Tim Kelsell, Nikolai Schultz. William D. Ferguson, Matthias von Hau, Sam Hickey, and Brian Levy. That's an authorial equivalent of a manor, by the way, but I mean, they're all men, but at least it's open access. So props for that. I do love a good open access book. It aims to establish PSA as a permanent part of the development landscape by unifying different strands of thinking, putting the concept on a sounder theoretical footing and examining the implications for policymakers. First, the definition. Political settlement is an ongoing agreement among a society's most powerful groups over a set of political and economic institutions expected to generate for them a minimally acceptable level of benefits which thereby ends or prevents generalised civil war and or political and economic disorder. (gasps) Deep breath. So these are long sentences. These are, yeah, I think the writing is hard. My translation of this is avoiding costly upheaval by cutting in the big players so that they have a stake in political and economic stability. The big idea is a two by two typology of political settlements. One axis measures whether elites include or exclude a broad range of players, which they call social foundations for the, for the political settlement. If they're inclusive, You can expect the PSA to spread the benefits around. If exclusive, expect kleptocracies, you know, people steal. The other axis is more about capacity, the political elite's ability to get stuff done, which I I think they unhelpfully call the configuration of power. What? Anyway, the book does have the odd nice turn of phrase, but overall it's pretty heavy going. If that configuration is dispersed, there are too many cooks and no one knows what is happening. If concentrated, then policies can be agreed and implemented. So they're going here for the, you know, if power is in a few hands you can get stuff done, if power is, in, is, is spread uh, it's much harder. I think there's, other, there's obviously lots of other aspects to whether states are effective or not but that's the one they've chosen here. So the two by two uh, always yields four quadrants, right? So the four quadrants are broad social foundations, dispersed configuration, Lots of good intentions, but a weak ability to implement. Short-termism and populism and patronage are likely to flourish at the expense of long-term economic development. The second quadrant is narrow social foundations and dispersed configuration. You need to have this on a bit of paper, really, to make sense of it. Unwilling and unable to do much except steal or repress, often leading to instability as fractions of the elite squabble over the spoils. Broad social foundations and concentrated configuration most likely to deliver inclusive development, with pressure both to deliver social benefits to a broad sway of society, and the capacity to agree and implement long-term development policies. Narrow social foundations and concentrated configuration, with fewer pressures to spread the benefits in the short term, these regimes are better placed to force populations to forego immediate benefits while pursuing long-term economic development, a la Asian tigers. Slightly uncomfortable with these now that I'm reading them here, they basically prefer power to be concentrated, where uh, actually I kind of prefer democracies and power to be spread. So I think they've, they're falling into that trap of the Asian model or the image of the Asian model that you just need a, you know, a small number of well-intentioned leaders and then you can get development going and we'll you know put, kick democracy down the road. So I'm, slight, I'm probably more negative about the book now than I was when I was reviewing it, which is interesting. Is all this particularly useful? The test comes in the final four page advice for policymakers section. First, focus on the broad concentrated settlements. It is only in this type of settlement that finance or technical advice is likely to work well. Second, in narrow concentrated settlements, development partners will need to be more imaginative. That means shifting political incentives to try and broaden the social foundations. E.g., by trying to convince the elites that educating the workforce might make them richer or substituting for failed state provision, for example, via aid funded parallel health and education services. Not exactly a long term strategy. Where resources are a big source of revenue, global initiatives to encourage transparency, dig- discourage theft can help. Also, find champions, work with civil society, etc., to broaden the social base. In broad based settlements, Top down, system wide reform efforts are unlikely to work. But identifying and working with pockets of effectiveness, you know, maybe a, a ministry that works well or a, a local government that's really you know, on it, and multi stakeholder coalitions might help. Narrow, dispersed settlements are the toughest nut to crack. What are donors supposed to do when the country, or at least the capital, is in the hands of a small group clinging onto power, trousering what they can? i.e., stealing, and unable to implement very much, even should they want to. Such places often, and quote from the book, teeter permanently on the brink of conflict. Here the book defaults to global governance, tackling global bads like finance, taxation, arms, drugs, etc., to reduce the likelihoods uh, of division and meltdown. The problem is, as ever, that aid is increasingly targeted at the hardest to fix places, narrow dispersed in this formulation, often fragile and conflict affected states. Because the broad concentrated settlements mostly no longer need aid. Tricky. Overall some useful stuff in here but and, and I probably missed a lot of nuance partly because the writing was so dense. I was left with a bit of a meh feeling that this was essentially an unnecessarily complicated and inaccessible version of a 2 by 2 that Oxfam uses which is are elites able and are they willing to do the right thing. And you put that on a 2 by 2 and it's a whole lot easier than this you know um, Uh, dispersed, narrow sort of formulation. But I'm probably missing something. I usually am. Um, Right. I'm off to the LSE. Have a great weekend uh, and I'll speak next week. Bye.